Okay. You're skeptical. All right. So we're I on see Facebook. Myself. <laughs> there you are, Bruce Iglauer of Alligator Records. Uh, look at this. It's Car Con Carne. It's a food podcast recorded in a car. Uh, that car is a Mazda. We're recording on Granville today. Bruce Iglauer of Alligator Records, a man who founded the label over 45 years ago. Uh, Car Con Carne presented by the Autobarn Mazda of Evanston, which is 1015 Chicago Avenue. This month, Autobarn's offering financing as low as 1.9%, 1.9% for 60 months on select Mazda models, up to $2,000 customer cash on select Mazdas. I've always wanted to do this part. This is like a total radio commercial thing. I've never been able to do it. Customer cash cannot be combined with all offers, including special lease and special APR offers financed through participating lender. With approved credit, offer valid to 12318, no cash value. Limit one discount per customer per vehicle. Must take new retail delivery from dealer stock by 12318. Residency restrictions may apply. See dealer for complete details. I did it. I am impressed. Thank you. <laughs> Are you you're, ready? You're ready for the side effects of... of various uh, medications now i i am i'm ready to move on to <laughs> and i would just like to say in behalf of your sponsor unsolicited i actually bought my mazda at autobarn mazda look at that is it i've been driving it since 2011 i go there for service it's they do a great job i love, love that the car. i love that an autobarn mazda of evanston customer bruce Aguilar absolutely Val- true love it no fib it's car con carne So we are on Granville. We are on the north side of the city. Uh, reading your new book, Bitten by the Blues, Your History, the Alligator familiar. What's that? Looks familiar. Looks familiar. Uh, we probably should have gone somewhere on the west side or the south side, just to kind of keep it keep it real, <laughs> keep it true to, to your roots. Well, remember, I spent my time on the west side and the south side in clubs, not so much on the street. Yeah, we probably wouldn't want to record on the street. <laughs> out there what a different era and i'm gonna bounce around all over the place with this book and you could bust out the tacos okay we went to flacco's underneath the uh, red line you got a couple al pastor i got an al pastor and a fish taco a pescado oh and we've got a fork and lots of napkins i I, many napkins and they will be put to good use oh and they marked the tacos what smart people very smart okay we we got in there at a good time too just before the crowd it was packed by the time we left so going back to the early 70s when you were going to the West Side Clubs and the South Side Clubs, mm-hmm. is it still like that now? Could could that scene exist the way it did back when you were discovering the blues and falling in love with the blues? I wish. Um, in those days, you know, blues was still much more a form of pop music amongst the African-American people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was amongst adults. It, I didn't see a lot of kids in there. But they were almost all people who grew up down south. They had heard blues from the, literally from the cradle. And a lot of them had come north together, the musicians and the, the audience. It was like they were the same people. You know, sometimes you'd be in a club where everybody was from Greenville, Mississippi, uh, or from Osceola, Arkansas, and they knew each other when they were kids. So the sharing of music was so much different than just being in an audience and, hi, I'm presenting the music and you're listening and applauding. People would holler requests. Uh, I remember Magic Slim at Florence's Lounge, always saying, any single women in the house? Any single women in the house? By which he meant, are there any women in the house with whom I have not already had a sexual relationship? Uh, Because, you know, I want to spread myself around. Right, right. (laughs) Like Johnny Appleseed. 
Exactly. All right, let's get the tacos out of here so I can get the... I, I feel like you're uncomfortable with the bag on your lap. Well, I'm worried it's going to make uh, bag noises, you know. All right, so the fish is me. And I've got two of the al pastors, which are uh, some sort of some sort of beef. It's a it's a pork. It's a like a oh, I thought it was a beef, but that's okay. Whatever it is, it, it's a meat object. It's, it's delicious, and these are scalding hot. Like, be careful. I, I'm worried about you burning your fingerprints off holding these things. Um, I could rob a bank. You could you could rob a bank. Uh, so again, Bitten by the Blues is the book. Now, for those watching on Facebook Live, they're seeing the display of this gorgeous hardcover book. I, like I said, I'm going to jump around. I finished the book. I felt amazing about Alligator Records. I felt amazing about you. I really enjoyed taking this journey with you. Then I hit the epilogue, and it kind of took my breath away. Can I quote you from the epilogue? Uh, sure. I hate to think what I said. Well, I mean, it, it, it was honest, and I think this is a good starting point. I had assumed that by this point, the future of the label, with its 300 releases and 46-year history, would have been secure. Instead, Alligator is struggling. If her audience doesn't adapt to the new technology for accessing music and simply stays at home listening to their current music collections, Alligator won't make enough money to release new albums. That was a gut punch when I read that. It's not what I wanted to write. It's just I true. I bet. So I'll fast forward to a question I ask a lot of people who are around the blues, who make the blues. How do we keep the blues alive? What do we do? What, as a music fan, as someone who may be passively interested but wants to know more, be more invested, what do we need to do? Is it as simple as just buying the music and going to support the bands? Well, what we don't need to do is have younger blues artists who are regurgitating what's already been done. The reality is that if you do a B.B. King song or a Muddy Waters song, you're not going to do it as well as they, they did it originally. Now, if you take that song and you contemporize it, is that a word? Contemporize sure. it. Uh, then maybe you could make it relevant to a younger audience. Last Friday, I went to see the Kinsey Report, a uh, band from Gary, Indiana, who recorded for me, recorded three albums for me yeah. in the somewhat distant past. Uh, and they did a version of Hoochie Coochie Man, one of the most overdone blues songs ever, and one that's on what the musicians call the set list from hell. Except, uh, and Sweet Home Chicago is also on that Oh, set. and Stormy Monday and, yeah. and Got My Mojo Working. You've, uh-huh. you've got the idea. <laughs> the most requested blues songs from the 80-year-old German tourists who come by the busloads to Buddy Guy's Legends, uh-huh. So, which for you out-of-town people is a club. So instead of doing it in the traditional do-do-do-do-do muddy water style, they did it as a funk jam. And, and it became almost like a hip-hop song where, you know, a lot of hip-hop songs are bragging about how cool and sexy the, the rapper is. And Hoochie Hoochie Man is exactly about that. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a uh, hoochie is a, a, a bodily part. Mm. And uh, those who are in touch with hoochie and coochie are those who are familiar with bodily parts of people of opposite genders. Uh, and that's the great thing about the blues, learning anatomy. Exactly. Uh, it's very educational music. So if blues is going to not be a museum piece... It's got to adapt to what's going on now. It's got to adapt in terms of rhythms. Blues was always a dance music. You know, when I came to Chicago and went to the west side and the south side, I can't dance. But other people danced all the time to the blues. To the fast ones, they danced almost like swing dancing. To the slow ones, they danced very close. Very close. What's called belly rubbing music. Mm -hmm. You know, it was pretty much as sexual as you can be with your clothes on standing up. 
uh, and and of course the implication and the hope that the dancers had was that they would later be not standing up. Exactly. Well, and so you... so it needs to have dance rhythms. People need to know how to dance to blues, and the lyrics have to say something that relates to now, not to picking cotton and yeah. plowing behind a mule. You know, those things all happened, and they're all very valid things that those people sang about at that time. But the reality is that now it's woke up this morning and my hard drive crashed. Yeah. I think Taranzo's bringing a fresh perspective. I love Taranzo Cannon, and I've really enjoyed working with him, um, and we're actually working on his second album right, right. now. Uh, he will be coming to my house tomorrow night to be honing the last bits on his new songs. He's been working on them for a year. And he's writing a lot about what's going on now, as well as, of course, about the uh, eternal uh, uh, subject of love and loss. But, I mean, he writes about social issues, like Chicago issues, like the, what's going on on the street corner in his neighborhood. Well, you know, he's a Chicago bus driver. Yeah. And he often drives West Madison through the West Side or Pulaski. And he literally has sent me uh, 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 photos, texted me photos of pools of blood on the street. Oof. Yeah, I know. Now, it's not all like that. There are plenty of people who live in those neighborhoods who are totally nonviolent, but violence is around them. So he, he will uh, sing about that and write about that. At the same time, he'll write about the joys of middle-aged women. Uh, and uh, he has a wonderful song about uh, called Midlife Crisis, mm -hmm. which is exactly that in which the singer, you know, whom he portrays, you know, buys the little red sports car and goes out with the 18 year old. A and uh, he's got a lot of a lot of humor in his songs, but he also writes some very serious things. So this book, it, it can be for me, it can be read on three different levels. And I kind of did read it on three different levels. I looked at it as a history of the blues told through the alligator lens. Uh, it's also, I think, a fascinating story about running an independent record label. It, it works as like a business story. And also it's kind of a behind the scenes of sh the grit of Chicago for 45 plus years. Well, the University of Chicago Press was the publisher and they asked me to include more business stories than I would have included uh, because the independent business has changed so much. You know, my company started, I started my company with $2,500, which was a ridiculously small amount of money uh, I spent even back in the early seventies. Oh yeah, I spent eighty percent of it just recording uh, the first album and pressing a thousand copies. You know, I, I which was I, Hound Dog Taylor. You're right, Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers recorded in eight hours, direct to two track, mixed it as we went. That's yeah. the guy mm -hmm. smiling all the time. <laughs> uh, happiest music I ever heard. It's fun, and I, one of the things you mentioned in the book. I mean, you wanted to capture that just that raw feeling that you first got when you saw him on stage? I first saw Hound Dog, it wasn't on stage. There was no stage at Florence's Lounge. They were on the floor. Uh, you know, Hound Dog played sitting down, although he put on a better show sitting down than most people can do standing up. And just with Hound Dog playing a $50 Japanese slide guitar through a Sears Roebuck amplifier uh, with a, a steel slide on his little finger, his fifth of sixth fingers. Right. And uh, a, a drummer named Ted Harvey, very basic kit, Played great shuffles. That's that beat, and no bass player. The other instrument was another guitar, uh, played by a wonderful guitar player named Brewer Phillips, uh, who played bass lines on the guitar, and then he'd switch. They'd switch, and and Hound Dog would play bass, and he would play lead. They played like they had, like they were the same person. There, there was such a telepathic communication mm -hmm. between them, and they had so much fun. I mean, Hound Dog never stopped grinning, and, and Brewer Phillips, he was just, he, 
Brewer had a, a, a mouthful of cracked teeth and hair that kind of stood up like, uh, uh, who would that be, buckwheat in the Little Rascals? That'd be buckwheat, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and just... Like like a kid. If you've ever seen George Thorogo do that leg kick, that mm-hmm. his signature, he stole that from Brewer Phillips. George was their roadie on the East Coast for a get while. out. That's oh yeah, he was he was working in a bar where Hound Dog played regularly in Boston, and George was the guy. He was what's called the porter. He would go down in the basement and haul up cases of beer, and he would open shows for Hound Dog on acoustic guitar for beer. That's amazing. That's amazing. When you first saw Hound Dog and decided, I'm going to make this record, I mean, I think what's interesting about this is I don't think Alligator Records could be what it is now, what it has been through the decades, if you weren't a fan first, before the business. Oh, I was a fan above all. When I came to Chicago, I didn't grow up here. I came to Chicago at the beginning of 1970, just after I finished college, to go to work for Bob Kester, my hero, great hero in life, Bob Kester, the founder of Delmark Records, uh, which was just sold after 66 years, is that right? Uh, that he ran it starting in his dorm room. Mm-hmm. A- and Bob had the Jazz Record Mart store in a CD storefront at Grandin State uh, back when that was right on the edge of uh, basically the slums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Delmark was in the even seedier basement. <laughs> and I worked for him as a shipping clerk. And I came here because I loved the blues. Yeah. And at that time, there was no blues on the north side. There was no blues in the white neighborhoods. It was all on the west side and the south side. And the same thing in other cities where in in the black neighborhoods, in the black community, there were blues bars. And these were not music lounges. These were not showplace clubs. These were neighborhood bars. It was unusual to have a stage. It was unusual to have a PA system. Hound Dog's PA system was he took a microphone. There was a second jack on his guitar amp. You know, next to the one where he plugged in his guitar, and he plugged in his microphone. And then they competed for That's the voice amazing. and the guitar for, for what you could hear. Uh, and that was not unusual to sing through your guitar. Yet. Now, your, your time at the working with uh, the Jazz Record Mart in Delmark, Record Mart in Delmark, sounded like it was kind of acrimonious at times. Uh, Bob and I had our fights. Uh, he fired me multiple times. I just didn't leave. But you didn't accept that, though. You just showed up the next day. Right. Uh, and he fired other people who showed up the next day. Uh, I loved Bob, but, you know, I'm, I'm a very hard-headed guy, and Bob is an extremely hard-headed guy. And one of the things I was hardest-headed about was I wanted him to record my favorite band, Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. I saw them for the first time down on the south side when I had only lived in Chicago for three weeks. And I came back just brimming with enthusiasm. Bob, this is a great band. You've got to record him. Bob had seen Hound Dog sitting in. And sitting in, Hound Dog was a disaster. Mm -hmm. People couldn't follow him. Songs would end abruptly. Uh, He would tell jokes you couldn't understand uh, and laugh into his his hand. Uh, He had a very thick Mississippi accent. And he stuttered. Not while he was singing. And Bob thought he was a clown. And he certainly was funny. Hound Dog loved entertaining people, and he knew he was kind of funny looking. He had a kind of uh, a kind of a hound face. You use that word "clown" a couple times to describe Hound Dog's oh, behavior. Oh, he would he yeah. would agree agree that he loved to clown. Mm-hmm. He 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 drank very heavily. He was a very effective alcoholic. Real good at it. There was a lot of that through the years. Through the you know, when you when you play in bars, yeah, and people reward you by buying drinks for you. So. Alcoholics are always very motivated to go play bar gigs because they get free drinks. But, yes, it was part of, of, of the basic kind of uh, uh, 
culture yeah. of, of the blues. Now, not every blues musician I worked with was a drinker. In fact, Coco Taylor, whose husband was an alcoholic, absolutely would not touch alcohol. Fenton Robinson, who was the, uh, the fourth artist I recorded, uh, was completely sober. Now, he hadn't been his whole life, but he was at that point. Uh, and these days, about half my roster is clean and sober after having been through the ringer with For sure. substances and alcohol. Like I said, I'm going to jump around. You mentioned Coco okay. Taylor. You didn't see her as a home run at first. Coco Taylor, when when I met her, and, and this maybe, is post Wang Dang Doodle. This is right. Wang, she had had a hit Wang Dang Doodle on Black Radio, mm-hmm. one of the last blues records played nationally on Black Radio because blues was going out of style. Uh, in 1966, on Chess Records, the famous Chess Records. Well, by 1971 or 72, when I met Coco, Chess was gone. It was sold. Leonard Chess was dead. They were moving out of town, and Coco was. She was no longer touring. She was back to, to cleaning folks' houses. She told me, you know, I spent hundreds of hours on my knees, and I wasn't praying. I was scrubbing the rich folks' floors. And, and Coco would come and sit in uh, with her friend Mighty Joe Young, uh, a terrific guitar player from the West Side, who had his own band, and they were very good friends. And I first heard Coco doing songs with Joe at the Wise Schools Pub at 2270 mm-hmm. North Lincoln, which was one of the first Northside places in the 70s to book blues. Mm-hmm. And Coco, I think I had one record out at that time, the first Town Dog Taylor record. But Coco, you know, Coco was a uh, very persistent, uh, in a very nice way, very persistent woman. And she approached me and she said, you know, I, you know, I recorded for chess, I'd, I'd love to make a record for you. And I thought, first I thought, okay, this is a stand-up singer. Now, I don't play music. I mean, I, I can make a few chords on a guitar, mm-hmm. uh, which I probably can't even do anymore because it's been years since I picked one up. I can barely sing on pitch. Uh, I can't read music. And I know no music theory. Um, and so I counted on the musicians I was recording to some extent to guide the band mm-hmm. and how the song would go. So when I recorded How Dark Taylor, he could say, you know, this is the lick. Mm-hmm. You know, this is we're building the the song around this lick. Uh, he could show the melody, or maybe just play it, and the other guys would catch on as quickly as possible. But Coco didn't play an instrument, and she wasn't really much of a songwriter at that time. She became much more of one. Mm-hmm. So I was very nervous. I didn't think I had the musical skills to produce what what we call a stand-up singer, a singer who doesn't play an instrument, and. Beyond that, I wasn't sure about Coco's range. You know, she was famous for that big, loud growl, and she used it a lot. And because I was hearing her only do a few songs a night, I didn't know whether she could do much else. But over a period of time, she convinced me to book some gigs for her. I was a booking agent, a really bad one at that <laughs> time. Uh, You're doing a little bit of everything back in those days. I was, I was road managing. I was publicizing. Yeah. I was publishing music. I was, of course, the record company. I was visiting radio stations. I was uh, uh, dealing with print media uh, and booking and, uh, you know, of course, uh, packing the boxes and taking them to ship to the And all that publicity stuff had to have been way harder back in a day prior to email and cell phones. 
when you had to be kind of dependent on a landline. And I stuffed a lot of envelopes. Mm-hmm. I mean, thousands and thousands of envelopes. And yes, I, I had a nice... My office originally, when I, when I first started the company, in a one-room apartment, I had a coffee table that I had fished out of a dumpster, and I was sleeping on a mattress on the floor. So in the morning, I would get up, pull my coffee table up to the mattress, uh, and I had a dial phone, one line, and I was at work. Who says the blues aren't glamorous? <laughs> I could work in my underwear. Uh, and then, of course, uh, across the room, I had a shipping table, which was two sawhorses and a piece of plywood. And I had a closet, which was my warehouse. Thinking about Coco and the, the ones you did land, whether it's Sun Seals, which was, I think, a seismic shift for Alligator Records in the 70s. Thinking about Albert Collins. What about the ones that got away? You reference Stevie Ray Vaughan and Robert Cray. Oh, yeah. In your book, as ones that you either didn't hear or just slipped by you. Um, I, I thought it was courageous to even say, yeah, I, I kind of missed these ones. Well, I didn't kind of miss them. I missed them. Um, Robert Cray was not being blues enough for me. He was more into an R&B thing. Definitely. Because he had the I, horns and he was definitely doing that thing. Well, he, originally it was even a more stripped down version, but it wasn't traditional enough blues for my taste at that time. I couldn't hear it. Stevie Ray Vaughan, who I heard at the very end of the 70s, struck me as the loudest Albert King imitator I had ever heard. <laughs> and I did not hear his originality, and frankly, he didn't have a lot of it then. But there was power. I had a hard time with white people. You know, I, I blues is created by black people. Right, it was an authenticity thing to some extent. Right, right. Uh, you know, the, the first white person I recorded was Johnny Otis, who, if I had said, you're white, would have slapped me. Because he lived in the black community. He was accepted as being a black person. He just didn't happen to be one genetically. Right. Uh, he happened to be Greek. But, you know, when he was touring down south, he was going to the back of the restaurant along with all the black musicians to the carryout window because they couldn't sit in the restaurant. Wow. And he would stay in the, in the black-run hotels because the black people couldn't stay in white-run hotels. When was this? This would have been in the, in the 40s and yeah. the 50s. But... Well into the 60s, if you're touring down south, you know, it. even when the legal segregation ended, de facto segregation continued. Wow. Uh, and and it, was, it was really hard to be a black musician. You know, there was a lot of sleeping in the car. Yeah. Um, there's some great pictures in this book, and I'm not going to hold them up right now. One of my favorites is with you, Dr. John, and Professor Longhair. Mm. Like, the, the, you were just in the middle of this New Orleans super summit with those two guys in the same room together. And they recorded for you, but... Well, I had the honor to produce the very last album that Professor Longhair ever recorded. Which was great. Crawfish Fiesta. Mm-hmm. It's one of the gems of the catalog, and I totally locked into it. And then my friend Tad Jones, who was a scholar of New Orleans music, was a friend of Dr. John. And he called up Dr. John and said... This album is happening, and would you help? And Mac, I, I don't, I, Dr. John's his stage name. Mac, Mac Rebinek. Mac Rebinek. Yeah. Started as a guitar player. He had stopped playing guitar because he injured his little finger. I didn't know that. I, just, I think of him as a piano player. And yeah, Right, he moved to piano. Mm-hmm. I think he was, I think he, the injury might have involved a gunshot, but I'm not sure. It's a better New Orleans story, better blues story. Always a better blues story if there's a gun involved. And unfortunately, there are way too many that that where the gun is really involved. 
uh, or a knife. Um, but at any rate, he came to play rhythm guitar. He had no desire. I had to talk him into taking a solo. All he wanted to do was play rhythm, lock the groove, and he worked with the, with the horn section. Uh, you know, as I said, I'm not a, a musician. I don't know. I know a little about horn voicing, but not very much. The horn section that Doctor that uh, that Professor Longhair had in his band at that time was good, but not necessarily great. But Mac made them better, and we recorded the whole album in two and a half days. I love that. All right, so we're going to continue the conversation on CarcoonCarney.com. We're going to do the full audio podcast. I want to thank you for watching on Facebook Live. Uh, Carcon Carney is presented by the Autobarn Mazda of Evanston. That's Bruce Iglauer from Alligator Records. His book is somewhere in my back seat. Bitten by the Blues. Gorgeous. I love the uh, kind of concert poster cover. That was the concept, yeah. The kind I used to see on the phone poles on yes. the west side. Love it. Uh, this is a must-read. Like I said, it works on so many different levels. If you're a fan of music in general, uh, this is going to click for you. And certainly if you're from Chicago, it's a can't miss. If you if you like blues or if you're interested in the independent record business, or just, you know, it's a, it's a very American story. And I've tried very hard to make it not a story about me. Oh, and because frankly, I'm not the, the most interesting person I know. The most interesting people are the musicians. Yeah. And I tried to tell lots of stories about them. So I tried to be a camera for a lot of this book. And it works. Okay, thank you for watching on Facebook Live. The podcast continues. Really good taco. Uh, it seems like reading these stories and Bitten by the Blues, uh, Buddy Guy was always kind of circling around. It was always in your orbit in some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. Back then, was he more just local player, checkerboard lounge guy? or It, it was really kind of odd. By the time I met Buddy, he had already toured with the Rolling Stones, Buddy and Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. I remember asking, excuse me, I remember asking Junior how what the Stones were like. And he said, they were really nice for a bunch of sissies, by which he meant homosexuals. Got it. No, I don't think the Stones were a bunch of homosexuals. Although, you know, Mick was kind of, you know, metrosexual or whatever. Oh, yeah. But, but I think he took them for that because they weren't his style of guys. Right. I get that. But Buddy, at that time, came back from that tour, and he was being the house guitar player at Teresa's Lounge. This was before the checkerboard. Mm-hmm. And driving a tow truck. Damn. Damn. And and working for you know working at Teresa's for twenty five or thirty bucks a night. So thinking about Bitten by the Blues, I mentioned the Chicago ness. I I can picture the, the intersection of Irving Park and Broadway in the seventies with drug deals going down. The way you're describing it, I can picture a lot of this in my head as I'm reading it, which leads to the question, Bruce, Bitten by the Blues, the movie. Can you option this? <laughs> um, actually, we my co-author Patrick Roberts who should get a lot of the credit for this book because it never would have gotten done if it hadn't been for Patrick. And he's the professional writer. I'm the professional talker. You know, well, he well, took my talk and, and honed it into the stories. But well, here's the thing, Bruce. Most people in life are lucky to have one good story to share at a cocktail party. You've given me like 15 in one car visit. And we haven't even talked I about ex- the train wreck. You know, it almost seemed too obvious to talk about, but well, it's a big know, part of the book with Sun was, Seals. Back when I was uh, a single guy... You know, and trying to meet women in bars. There's nothing like being the hero of a train wreck, a real train wreck, not not oh. a musical train wreck. I've yes. had those too, mm-hmm. uh, but, but, but a real train wreck. And I wasn't the only hero, but it's the only time 
the only time in my life I've ever done anything brave. And trust me when I tell you I have no desire to be in that situation. Oh, again. I can't imagine. That's that's a story left to the book. I, I, okay, but but it was uh, a story of being with musicians who were also involved in the res- rescuing a bunch of people, and including the woman who had refused to allow a black person to sit in the train compartment with her, who had gone nuts in Norwegian uh, on our drummer uh, when he tried to come and sit with me in, in a compartment, you know, not with the other members of the band. Oh, my God. Again... And we rescued her. This is good movie stuff. Well, it's you asked the question, yes, we, we kept the movie rights. Well, whether anybody's going to be interested in it or not, there, it's in our contract that, that my co-author and I have the movie rights. Okay, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed because I would, I was imagining this in my head. And the one thing the book is missing, which it's missing by design because it's a book, you can't hear it. So what the book does is it gets you excited to listen. Like I read the book, I got through the first couple chapters, and there's a lot about Hound Dog and finding him and recording him. I thought, oh my god, it's been ages since I listened to that first album. I want to put it. I, I want to listen to it. Like it, it inspired me to listen, but I think a movie could probably help. It would kind of fill that gap. You'd hear the sounds. Well, of course, trying to get somebody to play like Hamdard Taylor could be very rough. Well, you could do like the Queen movie where they're just lip syncing. Oh, I haven't seen the Queen movie. And as you might imagine, it wasn't really high on my no. list. <laughs> I do regret that I never recorded Freddie Mercury doing his blues <laughs> album. But, right. you know, he, 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 we were talking about it. But <laughs> at, any, at any rate, uh, you know, I, I'd love for it to be a movie. But I, if it inspired you to listen to the music, that's great. If it would inspire you to go out and hear the music live, even better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this music, I've tried to make records that communicate like, like the blues communicates live. And I like to call it soul-to-soul communication, where hopefully the artist is reaching down inside himself or herself and grabbing those very intense, raw emotions and putting them into music and and sending them out to you, the listener. Yep. You know, this music is all about about emotional healing. Uh, When I came to Chicago, somebody said, you know, the blues isn't sad music. A musician said this. The blues isn't sad music. You listen to the blues to get rid of the blues. I've heard Little Ed say that. Well, uh, you know, Ed is, I mean, Ed is one of my, my my great success stories. And in the book, I tell the story of Little Ed's first surprise recording session, <laughs> where we made a surprise a surprise album that neither of us expected to make that mm-hmm. night. We expected to record two songs, and we recorded 30. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, Ed, that was in 1984. Ed has been with us ever since. And he went from being the junior member of, of the Alligator roster to the senior member of the Alligator roster. One of my favorite uh, Little Ed moments, one of my favorite songs he ever did is a song called Hold That Train. And I was asking him about it a few years ago. I said, tell me about it, because this, this, this is such an infectious, great song. He said, well, there's so many blues songs about the trains going by, my baby left on the train. This is me saying, wait, hang on, hang on a second. I love the woman on the train. Hold the train. I want to catch up. And that, that's the, the uplifting side of the blues. Oh, it's a it's an absolutely fun song. It was the last song we recorded for that album. He almost didn't do it. I loved his version live, and he said, "Oh, I've done that so many times. I don't know." And we ended up opening the album with that, and it's become one of his signature songs. You know, I told you, Hound Dog Taylor was the it was the happiest music I ever heard. Little Ed and the Blues Imperials are the second happiest yep. music I, I can ever see heard. That. I can totally see that. But I can tell you that when Ed does a serious slow blues. Even in rehearsal, when we rehearse his albums in our in my warehouse, 
he sometimes will be crying during the song because he, the emotions are so real to him. And you are a fan of the slide guitar. Yeah, I really like the metal on metal. Uh, you know, I always have in the moving pitches. I I don't know what what does it for me. You don't have to you don't have to be that good at slide to to get me. A slide just hooks me. You know, Toronto Cannon now is beginning to play some slide, and it's just already yeah yeah go for it, man. I you know I want to hear that. I'm all in. Yeah, you I, know the the uh, you know I regret of course the musicians I I never got a chance to hear live. And of all of them, the one I regret most is not hearing Elmore James, who was, you know, the kind of the guy who wrote the book on blues slide guitar, but mm -hmm. was also one of the greatest vocalists of all time and sang just so much right at the edge of his voice. His voice would crack. And I love that because there was no holding back um, you know, more than anything else. And I think you'll get this from from the book more than anything else. I love music that is full of passion. It's that and authenticity. I, I, I don't. I'm less concerned about technique than I am about just letting all your emotions right out. Don't hold anything back. And that's one of the things I love about the blues. It's music that is based on not holding anything back. I love it. Alligator Records, uh, 45 plus years in running, still cranking out great forward-thinking blues music. Congratulations on keeping, keeping things moving forward. Thank you. It's been uh, it's been a fun, actually, 47 years. Uh, and a few years ago, the American Association of Independent Music, A2IM, gave a Lifetime Achievement Award to me. Uh, and I, my condition for receiving this award was I said, it was after 45 years, I said, if I can do this for another 45 years, I want a second award. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my intention. I'm not done yet. Good. You know? Amen. I'm, uh, I'm older than I ever thought I'd be. And I've got plenty of energy and plenty of love for this music. And, the, you know, this music has kept me young and crazy. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm expecting it's going to keep me young and crazy for, crazy for a lot longer. I love it. Bitten by the Blues is the new book. Uh, Bruce, thank you for eating tacos with me and talking, and talking over tacos. here. Good tacos. Good tacos. You, you know, you hardly, you had a few bites. I, I'm talking a lot. I'm, i got to keep the show going. I, I, I can snack on the way home. And I got extra guacamole. Yeah, you're no fool.